From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When it comes to water, Laura Lee Cloud says indigenous tribes like the Ute, Southern Ute, don't just use water, they protect it and treat it with reverence. Water means more to us than just dollar signs or that it's going to water our crops. There's more to it. There's a spiritual aspect to that. We'll talk with the first indigenous member of the Colorado Water Conservation Board about inclusivity, the challenges, and the opportunities ahead. Then, preserving the Denver Star newspaper in its place in history, documenting the lives of Black Coloradans in the early 1900s. I want young people to find out information because that's how we keep it going. Telling the story, once again, telling the story. When you become a sustaining member of Colorado Public Radio, you decide how much you want to give by credit or debit card or automatically from your bank account. And you choose the amount, $5 a month, $10 a month. You can make a change at any time. Join a growing movement at CPR. Evergreen membership is easy, flexible, and a powerful way to support the programs you rely on. Become an Evergreen member and start giving monthly today at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. When it comes to water, Laura Lee Cloud says indigenous tribes like the Ute, Southern Ute, don't just use water, they protect it and treat it with reverence. And as the Colorado River remains in crisis, she's hopeful water rights will truly become inclusive after decades of effort. Cloud is the first Native American on the Colorado Water Conservation Board. She spoke with Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess. Can you give us a sense for how the history of the Southern Ute intersects with the water challenges you're working on today? So as you know, tribal history is very important within within the United States because it's tied to the history of this country and it's also tied to the water and particularly in the Colorado River Basin, where a lot of this conversation is happening. For the Ute people, the Southern Ute people particularly, the Ute people have been the longest and oldest continuous inhabitant of what is now known as the state of Colorado. Our creation story started in the Rocky Mountains. We don't have a migration story like no other tribes do. My historical area is encompassed pretty much the entire state of Colorado. A large portion of Utah, the upper portions of Arizona and New Mexico. And we traveled with our seasons. We gathered our foods and our medicines throughout this area. And we've always had the principles of taking care of ourselves and our environments. Those two have always been a balance and be with each other. And through time, when the Europeans came over, my area shrunk. we ended up on reservations. We were located into where my reservation is at currently. And we are in the southwest corner of the state. My reservation currently borders the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation, the Hickory Apache Nation, and the state of New Mexico. But we are in the state of Colorado. It encompasses now about 110 miles in length and about 15 miles wide. And so now, you know, you people, we come from different bands of of Utes. And my band that's on my reservation is the Malachim Kapolta bands of Utes. 
And so that's a, a general history of where the tribe is at. And it plays a big part of why we're wanting to be so much involved in the decision making of what's going on in the Colorado River Basin. And your newest role is on the Colorado Water Conservation Board. You were appointed in March, I believe. What has that experience been like? It has been fantastic so far. It aligns closely a lot with history Ute principles because the Colorado Water Conservation Board, their mission is to conserve, protect, and develop and manage Colorado's water for present and future generations. And honestly, that's not much different than what we believe as Ute people. I am currently representing the San Miguel, Dolores, and Fallon Basin, which covers both the Southern Ute and Ute Mountain Ute reservations, as well as 10 counties. I am the first Native American to join this board since the creation in 1937, which is really, it's a fantastic opportunity, but at the same time, it's a little bit overwhelming because I would have hoped that more Native people would have a voice at that level and as you know, that just hasn't happened because of inclusion within the basin as far as policy makings. And I wanted to ask about that. Historically, tribes have been left out of the process of negotiating these Colorado River issues. Do you feel that's going to be different this time around? I'm hopeful that we are going to be included in those conversations. There has been um, a lot of effort going forward historically in making sure that tribes are included in those broader conversations. There currently is still no formal written document or no formal process for tribes to be included in those conversations. The Colorado River Compact was created in 1922. It wasn't until 1924 that Native Americans became citizens of this country. And so with that and and our tribal history, I think that plays a big part in why we were not part of those conversations at the very beginning. And so now being included in those conversations is going to be critical. And because we know that we are sovereign and for the federal government and the Bureau of Reclamation and the Upper Colorado River Commission to recognize tribes as sovereigns and having those government to government um, discussions when it comes to water. I think is is critical. Last fall, uh, we learned that Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Wyoming, for the first time, began formal negotiations with tribal governments over water. How is this going to affect the broader water conversation now that tribes are formally being brought into discussions that they've so long been left out of? Um, I think it's going to have a positive impact. You know, when you talk about these state officials finally having conversations with tribes, again, it's been historical. We've been meeting with the Upper Colorado River Commission, They're the commissioners from each one of those states, and all, all the tribe, the six tribes in the Upper Basin. We've been meeting now for a year, and in August will be a full year that we've been meeting. We've had some really good conversations, but we've had to get through a lot of tough conversations to get to that point. And if I think that since these state officials were so willing to take that on, we're going to make a, a really big impact for not just for, I'm hoping for the Colorado River Basin, not just for the Upper Basin, because it shows that there are four states that are are willing and able to work with tribes in their respective areas. And I'm hoping that that creates a leeway for other tribes 
other states, particularly in the lower basin, to find ways to work together and have positive outcomes. Again, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a positive outcome. When you stand together as a group, as a collective, even though you may not see eye to eye or agree with decisions or or the the understanding from where somebody is coming from, if you can put that aside and create the trust that's very much needed, we can do just about anything. And I think we all have the same same line train of protecting the river and making sure that all of the water users have the water that they need. What else needs to change to make sure we're getting more tribal voices involved in these water conversations? Honestly, it's the willingness to have the conversation. And sometimes there's not a willingness. There's a lot of standoffish feeling. And sometimes I believe that it's fearing that tribes may have uh, be, be using their water. And I think it's also, it's, it's a mind frame that we have to, we have to overcome. Because just like with, with my tribe, my tribe may not be seen as the water user that we are. We're seen as uh, agriculture, um, uh, you know, farmers and municipalities. We're using it for industrial uses, but we're also using it for our traditional practices. Water is the element of life. It is the essence of life. And when you believe that, and you believe that water is there, um, it's from creator. And we're, we're meant to take care of it and to be the caretakers of it. And when we come from that standpoint, we know that water means more to us than just dollar signs or that it's going to water our crops. There's more to it. There's a spiritual aspect to that. Again, we've been here. Creator made this world for all of us. And that's something that we believe as you people. And caring for that environment, we know that it's going to take care of us as well, too. We've always put the environment sometimes ahead of our own needs, it has a spiritual aspect to it because everything has a spirit to it. The water has a spirit to it. All the green things that we see, the trees, the grasses, those also have spirits to it. And, we have, and we're here to take care of those things. And so when if you can get others to think that way as well too, I think we can think of our environment in a different manner and provide for it in a way that is going to be sustainable for future generations. You were discussing the multiple meanings that water has to the Southern Ute. When it comes to tribal water rights, what do most people not understand? What are we getting wrong? Well, the first assumption, again, is that most tribes are considered just a regular water user. We're more than that. We have a cultural aspect to that. When you use your water in in, in a traditional manner, like we use our water in, in ceremonies, we pray with our water. We pray with our water in the mornings when we wake up. And it holds a special value in our lives. And so when we think about those things, we're more than just a water user. We're a water protector. We've always been water protectors since we've been here. In addition to that, you know, we have to think about tribes being sovereign. We hold unique federal water rights, which are senior and protected. Earlier this summer, the Supreme Court ruled that the federal government had no affirmative duty to help secure Navajo Nation water rights. What did you make of that? So that case is very unique because the Supreme Court held that the Navajo Nation had no rights to enforce the Department of Interior's trust duty to protect its water rights. 
but the court also continued to weaken the federal government's trust responsibility to tribes. That decision was very disheartening and disappointing, um, considering the administration has pledged to support tribal rights. But I also want to clarify that we don't believe the decision is directly applies to the Southern Ute tribe because our water rights have been quantified pursuant a congressionally approved water settlement. But nonetheless, we will continue to protect and preserve our water rights. You mentioned that you're the first tribal member on this board. Did it surprise you to be the first in this position? Yes and no. I thought there would have been a little bit more history to the board and and water within the state of Colorado. But given the history of the Colorado River Basin and the exclusion of tribal voices, in all those conversations, there's not been a tribal voice at that, that level of policymaking. And so that was something that all tribes are fighting for, is to have a seat in that policymaking. How do the senior water rights of tribes balance with overuse downstream? Well, you know, that is a major concern, and I think it's a major concern for most tribes, because most tribes don't have the capacity or the infrastructure, basically, to put their water to use. And in order to protect tribal water rights, you have to develop the water. And because a lot of the water hasn't been developed, it's been unused, and so that unused tribal water ends up becoming system water. And with that system water, now everybody else downstream gets to use that water. And they feel that that is, that's their obligation. But once that water is put to use, there will be less water for other users. Because these other users that have been using that water for free are going to feel those effects. And so I think that is a big fear of tribes using their water. And why there's so much resistance to tribes having a seat at the, at the policymaking table. Tribes have been at a disadvantage and disenfranchised for a very long time. And now that because of the tribal water study that came out in 2018, 2019, it showed that 10 tribes out of 30 tribes in the entire basin have allocations up to 25% of the entire river. And for you to leave that amount of water, of water users out of the conversations, that's a big impact when you're starting to develop water within the basin. But out of those 10 tribes, some of those tribes still don't have their water settled or quantified. The other tribes in the basin also don't. So that 25% honestly could go up. And I'm not sure what that percentage would be. And I'm not going to now take a guess at, at that. But that's a big impact of what you're looking at as far as allocation of the river and why the river is so over allocated, not just the hydrology, but it's the over allocation that part of the quandary that we're trying to deal with within the river basin and trying to save it. You know, you mentioned the infrastructure or lack thereof for some tribal communities to develop those water resources. Obviously, there's a lot of federal money around right now for water projects. Are you seeing any of that on Southern Ute lands? Funding is very critical and needed. I know that my tribe really needs the funding to repair and maintain our existing infrastructure, which is uh, most likely the, we, we have a couple, but the Pine River Irrigation Project is, is a big big one for us. In addition, my tribe needs funding to develop and construct new water delivery systems and the infrastructure, because we want to, work when we fully plan to develop our water, you know, going back to the reliance of the downstream users, that plays a part, I think, 
in a lot of the conversations that we deal with as far as tribes putting their water to use and the, and the infrastructure. And so sometimes it's really hard for tribes to gain the the money and the, the funding that they need to develop those infrastructures because sometimes they need uh, these projects to be shovel ready and tribes don't have the capacity even to get grant writers or um, their staff that they need to get the plans together to have a shovel-ready project. You mentioned that irrigation project that was a priority. Can you tell us more about that? Our Pine River Irrigation Project was developed and created in the early 1900s. This is a federal project. It is owned and operated by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And they put it in, in place in hopes that we would become farmers and irrigators. But since the 1960s, they have not maintained this infrastructure. So again, back to my reservation, it, it's 110 miles long, 75 miles wide. So in this little strip of land, there's 175 miles of canals. So out of the, this canal system, only 25% of this canal system is actually workable. And so when you think about how much is not working, that's a failure of the trust responsibility. And so that's one one infrastructure that we have and we're trying to get the funding for in order to fix it so that we can put our water to use. And that must be tens of millions of dollars in needs. The last estimate a few years ago, I believe, was at 70 million. And so with inflation and, you know, the environment that we're working in now, I'm pretty sure that's probably double zero. Zooming out a bit, what specific water conversation do you think is going to be the most difficult to grapple with going forward? I believe it's going to be the reduction in non-tribal and downstream water users so that tribes can develop their water resources in their communities. That, I think, is always going to be a contentious point within the basin. But as soon as we can, you know, get over the, the fear and help everybody in the basin, I think that's going to be where we start to develop positive outcomes of what's going to happen in the basin. I know this is the million-dollar question, but how do you go about alleviating uh, downstream users' concerns about that? I think it's just going to be having conversations with them because that's the only way you're going to be able to build trust. And it's not just with the downstream users, but it's with tribes as well, too. Everybody has a stake in the river. And there's a lot of mistrust right now that has built up for decades in the basin. And trust is going to be the only way that we're going to fix that. So if you can start building trust and building relationships with not just tribes, but the communities, that's a, a good foundation to start to build a positive relationship with everybody in the basin to find a positive solution. I'll get you out of here on this. You've been on the State Water Conservation Board for a few months now. Are you more or less hopeful about our broader ability to tackle these water issues? You know, I'm actually pretty optimistic about our future. So with that, I just want you to all to learn about the Southern Ute Tribe. We have a, a website that has a lot of our history of the Southern Utes and the Ute people in general. And you can follow the Southern Ute Tribe on Facebook and the Tribal Council. We have a, a Tribal Council also has a Facebook and an Instagram page and a Twitter but also learning about your tribes in your respective areas. Every tribe is going to be different. And so you can't generalize tribes or Native Americans 
you have to find out what each one is dealing with and how and why they're dealing with those situations. And on an everyday level, be conscious of your water use. Adopt practices that reduce your water. Pray for your water. Take care of your water. Take care of your environment. Talking about the Water Conservation Board, this board meets throughout the year, and these meetings are open to the public. And so if you want to get some more information, right, you can sign up for the emails to get updates on the water issues. The Colorado Water Conservation Board has its own website, and you can get the information there and sign up for those emails. Laura iCloud, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. This has been good. Laura Lee Cloud is Ute Southern Ute. She is the first Indigenous member appointed to the Colorado Water Conservation Board since it was created in 1937. She spoke with Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Heth. When we come back, a nasty pest that threatens one of Colorado's most celebrated crops. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The town of Iola disappeared to make way for Colorado's largest reservoir. I have played and swam in Blue Mesa, and I've always been haunted that there are towns at the bottom of Blue Mesa. Shelley Reed sets her new novel in Iola. Read Go As a River with us for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Then join us September 13th in Grand Junction. Details at cpr.org slash turn the page. Since the early 1980s, the sweetest part of Colorado's summers has been Olathe sweet corn. Grocery stores loudly announce its return and it ships to more than 30 other states. But now an insect threatens the iconic crop and its future. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg takes us to the vast cornfield outside of Olathe. In the baking sun, under big cotton ball clouds, farmer John Harold shucks an ear of the corn that made him and Olathe famous. You can see by the uh, the marks here that the birds went after it. At the top, a few kernels are missing, replaced by brown craters. But otherwise, it's a beauty. Satin yellow pearls, a halo of green silk, perfectly edible, but not sellable, because a corn earworm burrowed into it even though it's long gone. I think the worms this year were on Viagra. <laughs> They're breeding pretty quick. Harold's dealt with worms before, but never this many. Same goes for his longtime foreman. Samuel Jimenez. Who's been working these fields for decades. Este muy feo. Sí, for the gusano, muy, mucho gusano este año. Oh, <laughs> many worms. Basically, what we said is muy feo, it's ugly. In his overalls and big sun hat, Harold looks in good spirits, but there is no sugarcoating this. As of last Thursday, his business, the Tuxedo Corn Company, had shipped about 30,000 boxes of sweet corn. In a normal year, it would be five times as much, 150,000. Harold shows me around one of the many fields littered with corn casualties. As you can see, we're walking here. There's no ears on the ground for, what, 20 feet? Then all of a sudden we come to three years in a row. Workers throw the damaged corn into the dirt as they comb through each field. And that's before they even start picking. So it takes much longer to harvest. So long that a good portion of Harold's 1,600 acres won't even get picked this season. That's what we're trying to figure out. Is there a better, faster way to do what we've been doing? 
because there's no way we can keep up with harvest by running at about 15% of capacity. Harold doesn't want to talk money, but the losses are huge. And not just for his company, the biggest sweet corn producer in the state. He actually owns the trademark Olathe Sweet. Dozens of other sweet corn farmers in the area are also fighting the same tiny foe. It's almost indescribable. It's profoundly impactful, This the damage we're seeing from the corn earworm this season. Melissa Schreiner is an entomologist with Colorado State University Extension. She and her research associate have been pulling 80-hour weeks, trying to figure out how the worm problem came to be and how to combat it. There are folks desperate for answers, including myself. Shriners heard the theories. No spring freeze to kill off the moths that lay these worms. A hot July spurring them on. Winds pushing in more moths. Plus, she knows the usual pesticides are not working. A perfect storm creating imperfection. As John Harold has said, there's nothing wrong with this corn. It's just that there's the presence of a pest in there. And I think consumers could have a lot of impact. They could help save the sweet corn community if they weren't as picky. But a huge culture shift like that would take a long time. And that's a resource these sweet corn farmers don't have. A new state law requiring overtime pay for farm workers for the first time is adding more pressure. So is the continued heat. John Harold finds the term climate change too political to use, but believes it's happening. I'm positive of it. There's, there's no question in my mind. But I uh, uh, haven't convinced a lot of people. Still, as recently as about a week and a half ago, he sounded optimistic about defeating these worms. I guess it's just a, it's a natural gene in a farmer <laughs> that... Uh, no matter what happens, you, you just seem convinced as a farmer you can figure it out. But just a few days later, we speak again. Harold's on his cell phone, pulled off the road, surrounded by the farmland that produces this beloved corn. We, we may just uh, quit. I know, quit. Harold tells me he's giving it 40 days to try out new methods, to harvest, to kill moths, to try and salvage the season. Otherwise, he says, he might not plant for next year. So there, there's time for us to look at things that would work, but that time's running out. It's so thudding and stark that I keep calling him over the next few days, waiting for something to change. And it does, a little. A letter Harold wrote U.S. Senator Michael Bennett gets traction, connecting him with federal and state agriculture departments. Harold's impressed when they virtually attend a meeting he hosts with growers. There's still hope. <laughs> the problem is, uh, I'm not sure it's very uh, science-based. And hope often isn't. Harold says a lot of that hope comes from the other sweet corn farmers, the younger farmers, including his own son, David. We're, we keep trialing strategies. We keep trialing ways to fix the worm problem. David Harold says he's been thinking about and planning for this kind of large-scale farming issue for years. This is what we've been told. You know, it's going to get harder. The pests are going to get tougher. The water situation is going to get worse. And he thinks this is just the beginning, that all crops are vulnerable to these changes. 
And the second-generation sweet corn farmer is trying to see that as an opportunity to educate consumers, talk to legislators, to build farming for the future into something better. Robust, smart, healthy-for-our-community agriculture. Where maybe produce costs more, is valued more, and doesn't have to look perfect as long as it tastes good. Where farmers can pay overtime easier. A new type of food system. That, you know, people can buy into, support, go to the grocery store and feel comfortable and happy that what they're paying for is is worth it. As David Harold looks into the far future, he's also looking to next summer. And he believes you'll still be able to buy his family's corn. He thinks he'll plant. As for this year, workers are still hand-picking those tender ears, packing them in ice, sending them off to stores, the same sweet corn that put Olathe on the map, just a whole lot less of it. I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. When we come back, preserving the Denver Star newspaper and its place in history, documenting the lives of Black Coloradans in the early 1900s. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. On the latest episode of Back From Broken, Colorado Public Radio's podcast about addiction and recovery, how drugs and alcohol derailed singer-songwriter P.B. Siebert's dreams. Johnny Cash and June Carter told me how much they love this song. Life coming at you fast. Right. I was so insecure that I had to drink. Find Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. Supported in part by Step Denver. The Denver Star newspaper chronicled the lives of African Americans living in the Mountain West region from 1913 to 1963. And scholars say it did so in a way that most mainstream media outlets could not or would not at the time. Efforts to preserve the paper and its place in history have been challenging but a donation to the Denver Public Library has helped fill in some important gaps, original copies dating back to the 1930s. Here's what I learned when I visited Special Collections Librarian Brian Trimbath at the Central Branch of the Library in February. Brian, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So, pretty exciting news, getting originals of an historic newspaper. That's not something that happens every day. Can you put into context, like, the significance of this contribution? It's pretty significant anytime we get to, to fill in a gap like this and present a more complete picture of the world that was presented in, in any publication. And this one in particular, because it's less common than the Rocky Mountain News or the Denver Post, which are mm. going to be all over the place, the Denver Star, it had a number of different title changes, a number of different owners just kind of all over the place. And in terms of what's been digitized and what's out there, there's just some gaps that just nobody had. But this volume covers some of those gaps, particularly around the period of 1934. This publication is available digitally from a number of databases, and institutions have that digital version. Not very many have hard copies at all, but now we do, which is is a, a big deal, and I think people will find it pretty useful. And this was a donation by... Dr. Nancy Dawson, who is a retired college professor and former journalist. Yeah, yeah. She called us out of the blue, unsolicited, and said, you know, I have this. Right away, you know, we knew it was something that we really wanted. I mean, she called us, and it wasn't even a week later we had the volume in hand. Our Western History Collection 
is an amazing collection. It's one of the top collections of Western Americana in the country. But like everybody's, it's, it's stilted. It tells this one side really, really well. So now we have an opportunity to fill in some of those gaps that we haven't been telling very well. I wanted to see if we could give some insight into what this publication really tells us about life in Denver for the Black community. And I know Dr. Dawson pointed out that this publication tells the story of a community whose story wasn't generally printed in the daily newspapers of the Times. And her quote is, newspapers do a lot of talking for the African-American community. Black newspapers were essential to the story of African-American people. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? You know, when you think about the the daily papers of of the 20th century, um, early 20th century, mid-century and on, they're pretty monolithic in a lot of ways. Even the ones that were doing a really good job of covering the world, they had a pretty biased perspective. And a lot of communities, like the African-American community, just were not covered as well. So that goes for everything from, you know, local store openings to church events. There's a lot of church news in the Denver Star from churches that were pretty important to that community and that you don't necessarily see in the religious section of the Rocky Mountain News and Denver Post of that era. They also cover a lot of national news that was of significance to African Americans and the things that were important to them and the things that they worried about. There's a lot more coverage of racial violence in this than you would see in the, in the post or the news, and a different perspective. I mean, when it's African-Americans reporting on violence against African-Americans, it's very different than how the Rocky Mountain News or the Denver Post would cover it or that they'd cover it at all. So it's pretty interesting. Plus, you also see a lot of the advertisements for the local businesses, many of which have pictures of the proprietors. That community, Five Points, was not... It had to have its own alternate, you know, community resources, newspaper, everything. And this filled that gap for sure. And of course, Five Points being an historically black Denver neighborhood that still exists today. Absolutely. We're going to dig into some issues of the Denver Star, but you've had a chance to look at it. Is there anything that surprised you or anything particularly insightful that you noticed about it? The coverage of racial violence and the real real terms that they use is is very different from what you see. You don't you don't see these stories covered on the front page of the, of the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post at the time. When you're just flipping through this, you will see former Denver Mayor Ben Stapleton referred to in some pretty glowing terms having the support of that community despite his well-known you know connections to the to the KKK and support of that. It's pretty shocking when you see that. You do not expect to see Contemporary people do not expect uh, Mayor Stapleton to come popping out of these pages so much. And of course, just to even bring this issue up to date, the community Stapleton in Denver was named after this mayor. But post-2020, there was a movement to change the name of Stapleton to Central Park. Yeah. Tell us the backstory of how this donation came about. I understand this process has been kind of a roller coaster. It's been like six, seven years. Nancy was very patient with us. She was never like, when are you guys going to do this? Because our original agreement was that we would get it done in like, you know, 90 days or something really ambitious that did not (laughs) happen at all. But she stuck with us and she really never complained. She was always very supportive. And, you know, we kept in touch over, over the years. And then when we finally got it, we had it digitized professionally and we were able to get it to uh, Colorado Historic Newspapers. 
which is a, a website run by the state of Colorado that digitizes newspapers, Colorado newspapers that are out of copyright mostly. So then we were able to get it up on that right away, which was a big, it was really more access than we were even hoping for. And for this institution, you know, if we have all these materials, we want to make them accessible. People have to be able to look at them or like, why do we even have them? So that was a big deal for us to get that extra accessibility in there too. Now it's keyword searchable and uh, you can go in to Colorado Historic Newspapers and it's free and you can look at the hard copy too. That was Brian Trimbath, the Special Collections Librarian for the Central Branch of the Denver Public Library. Nancy Dawson is a retired college professor and journalist based in Russellville, Kentucky. She donated the Denver Star newspapers to the public library and waited patiently through the COVID-19 pandemic while Trimbath and his team figured out the best way to make these issues accessible to the public. Brian told me that... Dr. Dawson had held on to those copies for years and through several moves. And I should note the volume weighs about 25 pounds, but she never let them go. They were a coveted gift from her mentor, who was related to a previous owner of the newspaper. Welcome, Dr. Dawson. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about why you were so passionate about getting this donation to the right institution. A lot of times, African American artifacts don't go in the right hands because the people who have them when people die they just want to forget all about we don't know how to maintain and keep things so i've had the Denver star with me at least 25 years and this of course is through different moves and all of that right through being a professor at different schools and being a different i lived in several places but I kept it. Mm-hmm. And I knew one day I would get it in the right hands. And um, the Denver Public Library was really interested. They wanted to make sure it was properly maintained and let the public get it. And that's what I want. Because it's nothing if it's just in my house. It needs to go where people can use it. So I'm glad of that. And these issues were given to you by your mentor, Marie Ross. And she wasn't just the newspaper's editor. She was the first African-American graduate of the University of Kansas Journalism School and the niece of the Denver Star owner, Albert Henderson Wade Ross. And, uh, And so at the end of her life, she gave you this volume. And what were you thinking at the time that she gave this to you? I was going to do something with it. I knew then that it was important and that I needed to do something. Even though I didn't do it for 20 years, 20 plus years, I did. Having looked at this publication, what do you personally think is the value that we get out of having access to these original copies of the Denver Star newspaper? Well, I'm also a genealogist, so it'll help families uh, trace their history. Mm -hmm. It will help organizations get a better understanding of their history. And that's crucial, especially now when we're in these times when the narrative is attacked. And that I'm saying, you know, we're past certain civil rights things, but now it's about the narrative, telling the story. And the story needs to be told. So I'm really, you know, I'm gung-ho with that. 
I've been doing some other research for different projects, and I have learned a lot about the role of the Black newspaper, the Black press, during these historic times in capturing news events, but also day-to-day life for African-Americans. Is there anything that stood out in you looking at these issues in terms of things you learned about the Black community in Colorado and Denver at that time? Well, I don't think one thing specific. I think that the fact that Blacks were in Colorado, they were in Iowa, they were in Kansas, and a lot of people don't know that. They don't know the contributions they made, and they did. And like the Midwest was had a lot of Black papers, more so than the Deep South. So the very nature that that paper exists, it tells us a lot about Black people in the area. What is your hope now that the Denver Star originals have been donated and are now accessible at the Denver Public Library? I hope that young people get access to the information. I know I had some years that they didn't have. They have some of the years, but not all of them. And I was able to fill in the gaps. Mm. So I want young people to access them. I want young people to find out information because that's how we keep it going. Young people have to do the research. I can only do certain things. And I have done, I think in my lifetime, I've done a lot to preserve Black history all over the world. I've been to Turkey. I've been to Jamaica. I've been all over Africa. I've been all over the U.S. And I'm still doing what I can. And I hope that God extends my life so I continue to do it. Because that's important. Telling the story. Once again, telling the story. Dr. Dawson, thank you. Thank you. Nancy Dawson is a retired college professor and journalist based in Russellville, Kentucky. We spoke in February. She donated original copies of the Denver Star newspaper to the Denver Public Library. The newspaper documents the life of Black people in the region in the early 1900s. I got a chance to look through some of the newspapers in February with Brian Trimbath, a special collections librarian with the Denver Public Library. So the true value of this is that you actually get a hard copy. And I guess it has a little more nostalgia to see an actual hard copy of a newspaper, historic newspaper. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why you might want to look at a hard copy. We've had people come in to look at, you know, what's the paper quality? What was the use of color in certain items? You know, in library world, there's a concept of the content and the container. So the content's the words, and that, you know, you can look at that anywhere. There is something different about seeing a a physical item, and that's really what we strive for. Can Um, you describe for us, for someone who obviously can't see what we're looking at right now, can you give us a sense of what the newspaper volume looks like? So it's a bound volume that's about the size of an old tabloid-sized newspaper, which the Denver Star was was a tabloid size. It's the first few pages are pretty rough. These are the ones that have seen the most use. You know, they're a little bit torn at the bottom. As you go deeper in the volume, you see the condition is a lot better. So really like yellowing Mm -hmm. uh, paper, very kind of torn on the edges. Mm -hmm. Um, But you see the first issue says the Denver Star, Denver, Colorado, October 20th, 1934. And as you alluded to, there's a lot of racial news. Negro workers make great advancement along unionizing industrial plants. 
we also see NAACP attacks exclusion of Negroes from jury system in the South on, what does this say, broad? Broad lines. Broad lines. Okay. Yeah. yeah as, as To your point, it's yeah. the, these first issues yeah. are really in poor condition, so you can almost barely read some of the articles. And the new, newsprint is made with wood pulp. You know, the, the paper's made from wood pulp, so it's very acidic. You know, it wasn't meant to be kept forever. So it starts to get a little yellow. Um, if it's, you know, if it stays out of sunlight and air, you know, and in forever, um, it'll be in pretty good shape. And you can see a little further in, the papers, the pages aren't quite as yellow or as torn. Um, at some point, somebody had tried to repair some of the pages with some uh, scotch tape, which um, <laughs> the, the heart's in the right place, but um, scotch tape is also pretty acidic. Yes. Um, and it's not it's not a good long-term fix. It, it will cause more damage over time. But I flagged a couple pages here that just kind of show an example of, of what you might see in this really stark contrast of um, this large picture of an American flag and the Colorado mountains, and it says Denver, Colorado, and it says... It's a privilege to live in Colorado, especially in Denver, and enjoy her beautiful mountain scenery and wonderful sunshine. And then the article right next to it, this is from December 5th, 1934, says, unmerciful beatings and horrible whippings of Negroes in Florida bring disgrace on state. I mean, this is, you know, that's that's pretty stark contrast. Um, Absolutely. But these kinds of, I mean, this, this was not the story on the front page of the Rocky Mountain News on December 15th, 1934. And you can see on the other page, this is the back page of the issue before you see some ads for, you know, Five Points Retail Liquor Store. Haircut shop. uh, Yeah, the the Denite um, service station and garage on East 26th, an African-American-owned coal and uh, wood company, which, um, you know, if you think about it, if you were an African-American in 1934, you might feel like you trusted an African-American-owned coal company more than maybe one that wasn't owned. By, uh, African-Americans. And yes, two different haircut shop places. And my guess is advertising in the Denver Star was also probably more affordable for the businesses of that community. But also in terms of just marketing, if you're in Five Points, this is a great paper to reach people who live in Five Points if your business is there. So This is interesting. Riz Confectionery Company Fountain service, candies, lunches, and dinners. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're advertising sandwiches, noodles, Chile, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. and also a cab company, Ritz Cab Company. Yeah. Used to be a lot of uh, chili parlors in Denver, um, places that sold chili. And you'll find throughout here lots of church news, lots of church news. Yes, yeah, here's the um, a large, pretty friendly picture of Mayor Ben Stapleton that says, Ben again, howdy folks, that he was the mayor again, right next to a celebration of you know, Lincoln's birthday. Mm. Um, you know, like here's Ben Stapleton above a picture of, you Frederick know, Douglas. Fre- Frederick Douglass. And- Who's described as the giant of Negro manhood whose birthday memorial we cherish always, February 14th, yeah. 1935. So, yeah, here's here's another one um, that I thought you might find interesting is, is Negro History Week um, from 1935. Um, and they're celebrating. I, I'm sure that was not on the front page of the Denver Post that day and some pictures of, you know, some African-American veterans and then... Ben Stapleton again. Yeah, it says, if Ben has been a friend, help Ben again. Once a friend, always a friend. Um, Let's look at the food ad here. Yeah. Canned fruits and blackberries for 15 cents. 
24 cents a pound for some fish. And let's see, toilet paper rolls, 27 cents. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I don't know. You, I'm sure we all would, would wish we could go back to those yeah. prices. Yeah, <laughs> Let's yeah. see how much eggs cost. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. We always look, you know, there's there's some great websites that give you the inflation adjusted. Um, but sometimes these these prices are still pretty cheap, when even when you adjust them for inflation. But they're always interesting to see, you know, what, what was the thing that, that – um, I don't think they had fresh chitterlings uh, advertised <laughs> in the Denver Post, uh, for sure. Um, these are the businesses that wanted to market to the people who were reading this newspaper. So, um, you know, Ovaltine. it tells you something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Large Ovaltine, the, the chocolate drink. Wow. It's been around yeah, a long and time. Like I said, plenty of uh, religious coverage um, in there. Mm. Um, you know, oh, this is the one where the um, Dr. Locke, the head of the KKK, dies suddenly while secretly setting a trap to seize more power from newly organized hate. So this is after, this kind of after the early 20th century clan had sort of had, we're about 10 years past their peak of their power here when Locke died. And then again, you know, the American woodmen to hold an annual sermon at, uh, at Zion. Again, more church coverage. So, and then a story about sharecroppers in Arkansas. Fighting. Yeah. Yeah. So lots and lots of stories like this, uh, you know, that, that kind of news that, that was not front page news for sure. And under the banner, you see the Denver Star. We dedicate our journal to the uplift of the race morally, socially and intellectually. And you can see a, a subscription, uh, a one year subscription was was two dollars. Um, and you can see right there in the, in the banner. Uh, you know, the masthead of the paper that, you know, where they say how much it cost, who's the editor and all that. You know, right up top, it says Jim Crow must go. You can't you can't have prejudice without at the same time having hate, fear and selfishness. Um, and it just goes on. But, you know, this is their, you know, their masthead. So, you know, they, they definitely had a mission. Brian Trimbath is a special collections librarian for the Denver Public Library. We spoke in February. The Denver Star chronicled the lives of African Americans living in the Mountain West region from 1913 to 1963. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.